Thank you, H.E. Wonderful. It's great to be in church together with all this celebration, the children singing for us. Let's pray as we come now to God's Word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the heritage of uh, music and uh, these traditions that we have as we come to Palm Sunday and then Easter uh, next weekend. We pray uh, that um, as we come now to your word, you would help us to fully understand and grasp what it is that is truly amazing about grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking this morning, my friends, at Romans chapter 5 and verses 20 to 21. You'll find that in the worship folder in front of you as well as in your pew Bibles or your own Bible. Romans 5 verses 20 to 21. Let me introduce it for you as you turn that place up in your Bibles. Um, This week on my day off, I was at Barnes & Noble. Yes, they do still exist. And um, there I was at Barnes & Noble uh, browsing through uh, the different book titles. I enjoy doing that, looking to see what's there and what is not there, what's in, what is not in, looking through the um, Christian book section, what's there, what's not there, checking rather wistfully to see if any of my books are there, and and they're not. and, and then I'm always drawn, and I was this time, to the uh, self-help section. The self-help books, a uh, big kind of section on the wall there. I love the titles to self-help books. They just amuse me. I, I, here's an example. I won't actually give you a title. It would be bad to criticize a real book title from the pulpit. But here's an example of the kind of thing I, I observed this, this, this uh, week on my day off. Self-help book title, Seven Ways to Get a Ripped Body in Seven Days with Minimal Effort. <laughs> yeah, like that's going to happen. Uh, it reminded me a little bit of a story of a friend of mine uh, when I was back in Connecticut in New Haven. He worked for an ATM business, and um, the, uh, the owners of this business at the time were connected, uh, perhaps a, this, this friend was a Christian, but the owners were connected perhaps with some slightly shady elements to some of the um, business, uh, sort of underworld, almost, pretty much. And he was talking to them, he, he relayed to me, one celebration they were having at that business about what their real goals were in life. And it all came down to this, he who dies with the most toys wins. And my friend, he, he said, he found it so, so funny, so amusing. He kept on pushing them, saying, well, if he who dies of the most toys wins is your goal in life, then, but you're still dead. And it just didn't compute. It was just he who dies of the most toys wins. So this then uh, introduces, raises the question that the passage raises for us, which is how do we help people truly to grasp just how amazing grace is? 
Or conversely, how do we believe what we say we believe about just how amazing grace is? Look at the text with me this morning. It reads like this. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, as always with Paul, it's somewhat compact the way he argues. So let me just tell you straight away what I think Paul was saying. This is what I think this passage means. God's plan is that the sinfulness of sin would be shown so that the superlative abundance of grace would triumph to Jesus' glory. Let me say that again because everything uh, we're going to be looking at and talking about this morning hangs off this one sentence. God's plan is that the sinfulness of sin would be shown so that the superlative, and that word is carefully chosen, as I think we'll see, the superlative abundance of grace would triumph to Jesus' glory. Or, in other words, putting it a little more straightforwardly, Paul was saying God's plan was that the law would reveal the travesty of sin so that grace might highlight the supremacy of Christ. So first I'm going to show you why I think this passage is saying that, and then we'll apply it. We'll apply it all along, but there'll be two application questions right at the end. So first, I believe this passage is saying this because of its structure the structure of the passage. Now, if you're a Bible student and you want to really get your uh, hands around studying the Bible, structure is going to be an important way of doing that. The Simeon Trust has a really helpful tool related to structure, which is that every text has a structure, and structure reveals emphasis, and emphasis reveals uh, meaning. So there's a structure here, And this text is structured around a comparison. In fact, the whole verses 12 to 21 are one giant comparison between Adam and Christ. But these two verses then conclude that comparison, and they give it um, further weight and significance by applying it in a particular kind of way. So here it's not now a comparison between Adam and Christ, but specifically as an application of that, a comparison between the reign of sin and the reign emphasize the importance of reign this morning, the reign of grace. Now look at verse 21, see how Paul puts it. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign. So this passage is structured around two reigns, two kingdoms. There's the reign of sin compared with the reign of of grace. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that in Paul's vision of life, there are only really uh, two kingdoms. I feel like I need to quote Bob Dylan at this moment. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. There's a reign of sin, or there's a reign of grace. 
However, Paul, though, is sharpening this point here by saying this comparison is not always obvious. People don't think like that. People don't go around saying, I'm living under the reign of sin. That's not how people compute their experience. It's not obvious to them. So Paul is saying that God has a tool for making that obvious, and that tool is the law. So the first reason why I think this passage is telling us that God's plan is the law will reveal the travesty of sin so that grace would highlight the supremacy of Jesus is because of the structure of the passage, a comparison between two kingdoms, reign of sin and reign of grace, and a tool to make that obvious, that tool being the law. Uh, Look at it like this. Uh, say if I told you that this week I was uh, taking a walk in downtown Chicago, and uh, I walked between two skyscrapers. Wouldn't particularly amaze you, you know, Pastor Josh can walk, good. Say if I told you that that walk between two skyscrapers was at 600 feet above ground on a thin rope. That's a kind of Nick Wallender feat, uh, amazing thing to have done. Well, Paul has a comparison here, and he's saying that the one must be revealed for what it is, and all that the other can be revealed for what it is, and God's tool for doing that is the law, to reveal what's really going on. So that's the first reason why I think Paul is saying that God's plan is that the sinfulness of sin would be shown so the glory of grace to Jesus' honor would also be shown. Here's the second reason. The second reason is because of what Paul says about this reign of sin. And this is very practical. Look at verse 20. Paul says, The law came in to increase the trespass. What Paul is saying is the law had a particular purpose, and that purpose is to increase the trespass. Really? To increase sin? What does Paul mean by that? Lots of discussion, lots of different views. Here's mine. I break it down into four. One, Paul means that the common idea about Moses and God's law, then as also now, is completely wrong. People thought then and often think now that God's law is a saving thing. It's quite logical. They think that God is good, God gave the law, God is a saving God, and therefore the law must be a saving thing. Very logical. What Paul was saying is the law was never designed that way. The law was designed to make sin look sinful. Now, this verse would have been a deeply shocking statement. For Jews, Christian Jews at the time, would have thought of Moses as something, and his whole teaching the law, as something that set them apart as righteous. Paul's saying that's completely wrong. The whole point of the law is not to set you apart as righteous. The whole point of the law is to set people apart as not righteous. Wow. The law actually increases sin. How, how though? Here we are, number two. 
By increased sin, Paul means showing that someone really is a sinner. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see this in chapter 7. And uh, if, you, if you don't have a Bible with you, I'll read it for you. But chapter 7, Paul says this. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have known what it is to covet if the Lord not said, you shall not covet. So what Paul means is the law showed him his heart. Now, of course, the law was not sinful. The law is good. But the law is designed to show us what is really going on. So when the law said to Paul, you shall not covet, he suddenly realized that all his Pharisaic, superficial, self-help, religiosity was of no use. He was covetous. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of covetousness he was convicted of. Maybe he was jealous of rabbi so-and-so who had a bigger following than him, or such and such a person was more handsome than him, or whatever it was, but the law revealed the real situation. And Paul is saying that we, you and I, are so blind to that real situation that God purpose-built a tool to show us what's truly going on. The law is like an MRI scan. Shows us what's going on inside. Three, by increased sin, Paul means not only that he is going against the common idea in a shocking way, and not only that the purpose of the law was to reveal to us our own sinfulness and feel it and grasp it ourselves, but also the law, and this is what I think, the law actually increased our sinning. And this is an interpretation I take, it goes all the way back to Augustine, so I think I'm on pretty safe grounds. Look at it like this. So there's a wall over there. If you want someone to touch that wall, there are a number of different ways you can go about it, but here's one pretty much guaranteed way to make someone touch that wall. Put up a sign saying, wet paint. (laughs) Or there's some grass outside that you want someone to walk on. A number of different ways to get someone to walk on that grass. Here's one pretty much guaranteed way. Put up a sign saying, Do not walk on the grass. So this is not God deliberately setting people a trap so that he can leap out and say, Ah, I got you. This is God mercifully, graciously showing the issue of our own heart in practice. So it's not only, oh, I now realize that was a sin, but also, Given that I am now told not to do this thing, I realize my heart actually wants to do it. I am the kind of person who, when told not to do something by God, wants, therefore, to go out and do it. Fourth, by increased sin, Paul overturns, I think, the whole category of religious or not religious. Now there's another category, a thing called grace. 
So Paul described his own experience of this paradigm shift in his life, the book of Philippians, when he talked about how as a Pharisee he was so proud as to think that he was faultless, but now he realized the whole thing was rubbish or dung compared to Christ. One theologian then described how this failure of even the most religious, you think of the the guru, the most holy person you can imagine, and we all realize that actually they are not that holy, truly. And sometimes to be just more and more religious can make someone more and more of a prig because they feel like they have to pretend more and more. This theologian said, these religious experts are like boils and ulcers which enable the disease from which all of us suffer to be diagnosed. In other words, if Pharisaic Paul, with his minute concern for every little detail of the law, was what he called the chief of sinners. Then who am I? As I say, this is very practical. The great Puritan John Owen put it like this, a renewed sense of mercy requires a revived sense of sin. I love the Church of Scotland prayer that says this, God of mercy and grace, you know the secrets of our hearts, how blind we are to our own faults, yet harsh in judging others. How swift we are to take for gain, yet slow to give for others. How proud we are of our successes, yet grudging in our praise of others. Or C.S. Lewis simply said this, No man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. So we need, we need this ministry of the law, you and I. We need to be shown the real situation. Otherwise, we can't rejoice at just how amazing grace is. I, I love the story of, of the woman who was disappointed with the results of her husband's surgery on his eyes. She said this, We spent over $10,000 on laser surgery for his eyes, and he still cannot see things from my point of view. It's a real temptation for preachers to not preach for conviction because pastors want to encourage and lift. And yet, in order to lift, we need to understand just how amazing grace is and to do that by comparison. If we don't, it just won't hit home. I like the comedian who joked, scientists announced today they have found a cure for apathy. However, they claim no one has shown the slightest bit of interest in it. (laughs) Till sin be bad, God will not be shown as good. 
we need to understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin to run to the remedy of grace. There's a story that I'm told is accurate of how Eskimos used to catch a wolf. They would take a knife and coat it layer and layer in animal blood and then put the knife in the ground, blade up. A wolf will come along, drawn by the scent of the, of the blood, and begin to lick the blade more and more eagerly until the knife-sharp edge was revealed, and then keep on licking, not realizing that the blood it was now licking was its own blood. You heard the story of the frog in water gradually heated up until it is boiled. Sin is like that. Sin deceives, it lurks, it hides. And you see, this is not just talking about sex or stealing, or something obvious. Like, If we just preach it like that, then all the good, quote-unquote, nice, quote-unquote, people think it's not about them. No, the law needs to come in and show us it's about covetousness, jealousy. And more than that, it needs to come in and show us it's about God Himself, the lawgiver. So it doesn't matter how nice we are outwardly, how charming, how good our families are, how bright we are. The sin of doing it all for ourselves is like the blood on the edge of the blade, and it will kill us. Be killing sin, one great Puritan said, or it will be killing you. But first, you, you've got to realize it is sin. Just, That's the purpose of the law. It must be defined for you. Show us the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that the superabundant reign of grace will be revealed by comparison as far greater still. So the reign of sin, now the reign of grace. Paul is extremely effusive in his language about grace. It's not just Grace, it is the superabounding grace. Grace abounded all the more. There's a word here that Paul uses to indicate that actually this isn't, isn't just comparatively better. Really, grace is superlative. Superabounding grace. Not just bigger, the biggest. Not just greater, the greatest. This grace is super grace, above and beyond. And this superabounding grace reigns. Just as sin reigned in death, now grace also reigns in life. And the resurrection Sunday next weekend. In righteousness. Now, why does Paul introduce that word? Well, because this grace is not cheap. It came at a great price. This righteousness was won by Christ through his life and death. His righteous life that, if we believe, is now reckoned to us and has by his Spirit then a transformative effect upon us. You see, grace is not an excuse for sin. That's entirely the wrong way to preach grace. You know, I've got grace, therefore I do whatever I like. No, grace is power over sin. Grace is a rule, a reign. God rules through Jesus Christ in a new dominion of grace. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul puts it like this. He says, but 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, a lot of preaching would finish there. By the grace of God, I am what I am, you know. Vulnerable, open, you know, this is just me. I am what I am. Paul carries on. And his grace toward me was not in vain. That is, it wasn't empty. It wasn't something that made no difference. No. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In other words, this grace is not passive. It's active. It's a rule. It changes. And so Paul says here in Romans 5, through righteousness. It reigns through righteousness. It has an impact. It makes a difference. It's transformative. This grace of God in us makes us work hard. It it rules. It triumphs over sin. It changes our attitudes and our desires. Someone once uh, challenged Martin Luther about his preaching of grace, saying, you know, well, doesn't that mean you can do whatever you like? And Luther said, yes, absolutely. Now, what do you like? Grace changes us. It changes what we want. For having understood the real sinfulness of sin, we rejoice in the power of grace to follow Jesus in this new life. And this is all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul comes back full circle to where he left off in verse 11, emphasizing again and again that all this centers on Christ himself. And so... You know, uh, the Jewish Christian listening, as Paul said, it's Adam or Christ. He said, well, what about Moses? What about the law? And Paul says, okay, yes, let me tell you about the law. The law is good. It is true. It has a good purpose. There's nothing wrong with the law. But the law was not intended to do what you think it was intended to do. It was not there to set you apart as righteous. It was there to set you apart as not righteous. And therefore, to bring you to the point where you long for, seek for, cry out for grace. And then here comes the reign of grace. And since Genesis chapter 3, that rule of grace has been expanding from Abraham on, fulfilled in Christ, the rule of grace, the superlative, abounding grace. Self-help will not be sufficient. We need God help. Let me put it like this. I, I think it would be an accurate statement to say, however bad you think you are, you are actually worse. And I'm sure it's an accurate statement to say, however great you think is the grace of God, it is super. Superlatively greater. So it's not sin and grace, it's sin and grace. Someone cannot appreciate, cannot accept grace until they realize just how much they need it. I I like the story of Orville and Wilbur Wright, the Wright brothers, who were the um, uh, people who did the first 
uh, manned uh, flight. Uh, their plane was called the Kitty Hawk. It happened in 1903, December the, 7th, December the 17th, 1903. First manned flight, obviously a big event. And they were delighted, and they sent a telegram to their sister. Here are the precise words of that telegram that they sent to celebrate this amazing event, first manned flight in their Kitty Hawk, December the 17th, 1903. Here are the precise words of that telegram sent to their sister. First Sustained flight today, 59 seconds. Hope to be home by Christmas. Right? Great. And the sister, of course, is excited. Wow, that's amazing. That's great. She rushes to the newspaper office. She gives the telegram to the editor. The very next morning, the headline of the local newspaper appeared precisely as this. Popular local bicycle merchants to be home for holidays. They didn't get it. Until sin be bitter, grace be not sweet. The reign of grace. W. H. Auden said this. All sins tend to be addictive, and the terminal point of addiction is damnation. Sin is a rain. You say, Pastor, it's just one little thing. Listen to John Newton. One leak will sink a ship, and one sin or destroy a sinner. It's not just a breaking of a law, it's an offense against the lawgiver, the Almighty God Himself. And then there's the reign of grace. Sweet grace. Superlative grace, that overrules the reign of sin, that creates a new desire and a new affection, that reigns in righteousness and in transformative power through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, so He is honored and glorified. God's plan is that the sinfulness of sin will be shown so that the superlative abundance of grace would triumph to Jesus' glory. Paul is saying that God's plan was the law would make the travesty of sin clear so that grace might highlight the supremacy of Christ. This would show just how amazing is grace. Here are two questions for our consideration, application, small groups during the week. 
first. What sin in my life am I regarding as no great problem? Unless sin be bitter, Christ be not sweet. What sin in my life am I regarding as no great problem? Second, how can I proclaim, first receive, then how can I proclaim the triumph of grace in my life this week? Grace made Paul work harder than anyone. How can we make much of grace in conversation, in inviting people to church, in the way we live, in how we're generous with our resources of time, talent, and treasure? How can I proclaim the triumph of grace in my life this week? God's plan is that the sinfulness of sin would be shown so that the superlative abundance of grace would triumph to Jesus' glory. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that your law by your Holy Spirit, would do its work on our hearts. Perhaps we have not murdered. But the law and Jesus' interpretation of it comes in and asks the question about hate and lust, and covetousness, jealousy. This reign of sin leads to death. Let's not play games. Lord, would you also by your Holy Spirit show us the superlative abundance of the reign of grace. Love that covers over a multitude of sins. Grace abounding to the greatest of sinners. Grace that will not let you go. Would you receive grace again and be transformed by it? Oh Lord, we pray that to your great glory we will grasp and proclaim amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.